Welcome to Daily Kosa's The Brief, our weekly show about politics. Here, we'll discuss the issues that are driving the news as we fight for a more progressive America. I am Marcos Molitsis, the founder of Daily Kos and your co-host, along with senior political writer Carrie Eleveld. If you want to join the conversation, we record the podcast live on YouTube and Facebook every Tuesday at 1.30 Pacific, 4.30 Eastern. Enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. I'm Marcos Molitsis. Welcome to this week's edition of Daily Kos The Brief. It's our weekly show about politics. I am running solo today. Carrie Eleveld is out. If you haven't seen last week's episode, I highly recommend you do so. It was focused on the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I had on John Soltz and Brandon Friedman. Two, uh, John Soltz is currently in the Army. Brandon Friedman was in the Army. They were both officers in the U.S. Army, and both of them have extensive logistical uh, experience. And they were able to sort of compare what was wrong with Russia's attack and just how different it was from the American invasion of Iraq where it was a massive logistical undertaking and, and, uh, and obviously Russians have failed in theirs and why. So I highly recommend that if you haven't seen it yet. Today, we're going to be on that general theme, Russia, and maybe not so much Ukraine, but the role of fossil fuels and our addiction to oil in propping up re- repressive regimes around the world, whether it's Russia, Saudi Arabia, basically all the Gulf states, Venezuela and uh, Iran. And so it is a question that, that is it's quite salient. I mean, Europe is restricted in its ability to respond economically to Russia because it depends on Russia oil, particularly Germany and Italy. So what is the solution to that problem? The U- European Union just announced a plan to reduce that demand by 85% in, I believe, one or two years. I think it might even be one year. And it depends on member states. And Germany's basically saying, I don't think we can do it. But there is a understanding that giving those repressive regimes that kind of leverage over the West is not great for national security. And even right now, you have the United States talking about reproachment with Saudi Arabia, another repressive regime, to make up for the oil that is being lost from Russia. So it's, it's almost like it's, 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 it's a bit of a shell game. Which dictator are we propping up today? So to talk about these issues, I'm going to have two incredible experts on the international geopolitical uh, elements of, of energy and climate change, because all of these are intertwined. So, uh, let me bring them on. So today's guests are Tim Lang. He is also known as Meteor Blades on Daily Coast and on Twitter. And he is retired writer focusing on energy issues for Daily Coast. But uh, uh, here he is because I don't think, Tim, you can retire from from the fight <laughs> for climate change and energy and, and, and clean energy, can you? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. Also joining us is Mark Sumner, who is our resident scientist at Daily Coast and an expert on things like COVID and, again, climate change. In fact, for a big part of his career, he worked for a coal company. So yeah. as, a, as a geologist, right, Mark? I was exploration geologist for the world's largest coal company. So when it comes time to string people up over climate change, my, my neck will go first. <laughs> so I, I would like to think optimistically that's a little different than that, that you have had an inside look from the belly of the beast and you know uh, you are better 
situated to talk about these issues, having actually deep industry experience. So I'm glad you're on the side of of of, um, of cleaning up our environment and and preventing or mitigating the effects of climate change. For the purposes of this show, though, climate. I don't want to. I don't want to gloss over the climate change component and. Feel free to, to pull that in when necessary. But what we're seeing right now is a war that is funded in large part, if not almost entirely, from the proceeds uh, of uh, fossil fuels. And this is the Russia selling gas and oil to Europe, but also to the United States. And I've seen several numbers, but about 10% of U.S. oil is imported from, is used, is, uh, imported from Russia. Is that accurate? Seven percent. Well, it's complicated. Simple version is three point five percent of the of our crude oil imports come from Russia, but there's an additional four point five percent for petroleum liquids, which include a whole range of things, including gasoline. So the actual oil is somewhat less, about four percent. So, and and maybe I'll, I'll start with you, Tim. What is the core problem? of a world that is addicted to fossil fuels, uh, just generally, what is that core problem? And obviously climate change is a big part of that, but can you speak broadly and, and feel free to bring that in again? I don't want to limit you, but. Well, let me just start off by saying that the situation that we're in right now has us climate hawks in a nightmare. You know, it's like, here we are, we've got a war with a, an autocratic dictator you know, who is just basically doing it on his own, apparently, with a, with a little help from some of his army, not all of it, obviously, uh, because a lot of soldiers didn't know what they were doing. So here we have here we have a situation where we have to respond to that. There's just no way to avoid responding to that. And that has gotten us in trouble so many times over the last 75 years, say, since the end of World War II, by being addicted to raw materials that we have to get from some unsavory people around the world. And that is costly, not just to us, but it's costly to the people in those countries, often the environmental stuff that's going on in those countries to get the, get those raw materials out, especially fossil fuels is horrendous. Nigeria being a good example, Ecuador being good examples of places where that is just, you know, and then of course coal is the same situation. Um, and that, that, uh, that addiction puts us in, in a situation where we get to a, where we are now with a war going on. To respond means that we wind up raising gas, gasoline prices, oil prices in the United States. And that just doesn't, that, that's not just at the pump. You know, that's everything that's made with oil, you know, gets a, a price everything when that goes on. So... Uh, you know, everybody says, well, you know, it doesn't matter because, you you know, filling up your car tank isn't that big a deal if it's an extra dollar a gallon. Well, maybe that's true for some people. It certainly isn't true for the bottom economic tiers, but it's definitely, you know, in a bad, a bad place for the for uh, other reasons. And climate is the is the key one there. And if you're a green, if you're a climate hawk right now, you're in a position of saying, okay, how do we make this ban work against Russian oil and Russian petroleum? How do we make that work? And at the same time, continue on the path to converting away from fossil fuels. 
And I'm not hearing yet anybody who has a good answer to that. Although the petition that Daily Coast is running right now on a windfall profits tax is one way to do it. The windfall profits tax, which would tax, I mean, there, there's, we've seen the price of oil and Mark, you've actually written about this. And so I'm letting you talk about it, right? Because what <clears throat> we're paying at the pump doesn't really have a direct correlation to the price of oil in the open markets, does it? Well, you know, one one thing that, that uh, to back up a little bit, when it comes to how much oil we import from Russia, it almost doesn't matter, right? It, because we do import some oil, and oil is, in that great accounting term, fungible. So it's all going essentially in one big pool out there. And as long as there is more demand than there is supply, it's the price is going to go up. So we've seen that over the last few days. People have this impression like, well, if Russia is providing 10% of the oil, then prices should go up 10%. No, prices can go up. They'll go up until the demand and the supply are, are balanced out again, right? And that may, may mean that the price goes up until demand drops. Or it could be that the price goes up until people start additional production. But the one thing that, that uh, is, is a little terrifying is that right now with the price going up, it's likely to drive, just as Tim was suggesting, more production in, in terms of it's going to open up projects. People are going to begin more fracking, more drilling, more production from places that were marginal before. Yeah. The reason that we don't supply all of our own oil and gas, which we could, but you know the price hit a certain level, and some of those projects out there were simply not profitable at that level, so they didn't get built. They were, it was easier to get that oil in Venezuela or to get that oil in Russia. But you go ahead and take between 8 and 10% of the oil off the international market, that demand either has to go away or that supply has to come from somewhere. And it's likely to come from a lot of very not green projects that get cranked up again. So to sort of really drive that point home, because I think it's an important one, is is I've always seen like Canadian shale, uh, shale oil, like it, the price of oil has to be X number. I, I think it's like eighty-five dollars right. or something for it to be economical for them to do so, right? So if if, if the price of oil is at fifty dollars, sixty-five dollars, they would lose money if they actually extracted this harder to process, harder to to pump oil. Now that the price of oil is is one hundred and ten, one hundred and twenty dollars a barrel, that suddenly makes it profitable to open up all these all these new areas for for production. What I don't quite get though is is that if it was if if oil was fungible and really it's just a question of you know everybody talks about lean supply lines right um which is why with with microchips and whatnot nobody none of these companies like ford stockpiled these parts right it was it was they were just in time right because it, it, it cost them money to have a stockpile in warehouses somewhere so it was easier to have them show up the day before they needed to install them in cars and suddenly supply lines are disrupted because of COVID and everything falls apart. So I, I get that, but oil companies have record profits. Yep. How do you explain the fact that they're having these incredible financial results when they're just meeting demand? Yeah. Well, that's, that's the, the point, you know, is they try to keep the market so that the supply is, at or slightly below what the demand is, right? So they can get, they can maximize that the money that they're getting. 
They don't start a project that's going to give them extra production if that's going to drive down the prices. So they're playing that, that supply-demand curve for the peak profit point. They're not playing a game you know, to try to meet all of the demand in the U.S. or to make it smooth across the board. They play it to generate the maximum amount of profit. So you, you saw this earlier in the difference between coal and natural gas. For, for decades, natural gas prices would go up and down and often were a lot cheaper than coal. It would have made it profitable for companies to switch over to natural gas. But the what problem ca- what was kind that, of companies? Wait, what kind of companies? Oh, I'm sorry. When, when you talk about electrical power production. Okay. So, so in electrical so- power production for a long time, you know, coal dominated right up until 2008. It was more than half of all the production in the U.S. But natural gas was there and was often cheaper. But the problem was that the supply of natural gas was right on the cusp so that if people started using a lot of natural gas for electricity, the price would have gone up. It would have gone, the coal would have been cheaper. So they back and forth this for a long time. Then fracking came in and suddenly natural gas was in abundance and consistently cheaper than coal. And that made it profitable for them to switch it all over to natural gas and coal now could be coal could be free and it wouldn't matter because not only is natural gas cheaper than coal so is solar solar so is wind they're cheaper than just maintaining the plants that uh, it would be nice to get there with with where we are on on uh, uh, on oil and gas but but obviously we've got a lot of infrastructure out there mostly in transportation that depends on oil and gas and we can't make that demand go away overnight so it's more likely that that we're going to get an increased supply from dirty sources let me let me uh comment about that you know one of the big problems that here that here is a timing issue you know the ban goes into effect right away and the idea behind that being okay the ban on russian oil the ban on russian oil would go into effect right away or you know whenever you know whenever it's decided that it starts happening, and that is not going to have a right-of-way effect on, on Putin because, well, it, that might have an effect on him, but who knows what it will be. But it, what it definitely won't do is it will not increase American production right away. Um, let me quote you from somebody. This is Scott Sheffield. He is the chief executive of Pioneer Natural Resources. It's the biggest fracking uh, development company in the country. And his comment is, we couldn't change this year. I'm talking about a two or three year plan because U.S. shale, even if somebody adds a drilling rig, it takes six to eight months to get first production. There's labor shortages. There's frack fleet shortages. There's rig shortages. There's sand shortages. So to get going, you know, and this is the same with, I mean, it's even worse with liquefied natural gas, which is, is something that we could help Europe with, which we've actually been helping by diverting uh, liquid natural gas that was going to China to Europe instead. But to do that, it's the same. At the other end, it's the same thing. You have to build the facilities, and that takes a long time. And uh, in, in Europe, you also have the issue of if it's liquid natural gas, you've got to regasify. And there, while there's regasified plants throughout Europe, a lot of them are not in a situation where they're piped. There a number of them in Spain. That's where some of the idle uh, uh, refining facilities are, regasification facilities. They can't get it to the rest of Europe easily. So there's all kinds of, of, of a timing issue here with 
a ban and the effects that we want the ban, an immediate ban to have, the effects will not be immediate, except to the price of gasoline and, and uh, some and, and other products. Yeah, Germany, which depends on Russia, Russia for its energy needs more than probably anybody else. I think when Italy, Italy comes close. It's a country, European countries are famous for their bureaucracy, right? And, you know, these projects get stuck in, in bureaucratic hell. And, and it seems like they're really moving quickly on two new liquid nat- natural gas terminals, which would be imports, so ships could come in. But you're still talking two to three years of construction. Right. And that's assuming best case scenario. And everybody knows that there's not a construction project that ever, ever ends on time. And that's with them accelerating it in, in panic mode. So don't, don't, don't knock, knock, don't knock bureaucracy altogether. That's how Nord Stream got Nord Stream. Yeah. <laughs> because of bureaucracy. And, and Nord Stream, just so everybody is aware, this was, um, this was a big deal. This was a pipeline that was built from Russia directly to Germany. And um, it was funded half by, by Russia and half by energy companies throughout Europe. And it was, it was just a massive, massive project. $6 billion, I think, five, $6 billion. Yeah, under sea, so through the Baltic Sea, and um, it would have made Europe completely 100%, almost, I don't know what the number is, I'm making it up, but it would have been even more reliant than that Russian gas, and it's dead, 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 dead. The company that runs it is um, has just declared bankruptcy because um, Germany said, nope, we this is it's not going to happen. And it, was, and it was complete. That's the thing. It was For a while. Ready, it was ready to go, and they and the Germans just said, sorry, no certificate. We yeah, and it, it was it was sitting for, with regulatory approval was the <laughs> was the word that that so yeah I'm, I'm not going to knock bureaucracy but obviously there there's um <laughs> maybe sometimes I'll knock bureaucracy maybe sometimes it has it has its purposes but yeah it's it's the the mechanism to do so but you know Tim you talked about the sort it's a it's a nightmare scenario for climate hawks. And one of the ways that's playing out this nightmare scenario, I think, is, is Republicans are using this to try to argue for more drilling, more, more, more uh, looser environmental standards, looser regulations to make it easier for these oil companies to drill more. Is that I mean, how much of a danger is that? Well, it's worse. It's worse than just using that. The American Petroleum Institute actually is blaming Biden for Putin invading Ukraine because if Biden had pushed a, what they call more robust production increase in the United States months ago, we wouldn't have, Putin would have been deterred from invading <laughs> Ukraine. Right. Now, so stupid. okay, it's the American <laughs> Petroleum Institute, I know, but you know, I mean, these are the guys who, who uh, it's the major trade and lobbying group for, for the oil industry. And these guys are saying stuff like that. Also saying that Biden didn't, uh, didn't allow any new public land leases for oil and gas drilling, which is completely false. He did more in his first year than Trump did. So plus we're sitting on something like 9.9 million acres of approved but unused leases. They don't need more. Yeah. What's what's why do they want more? They want more to, to tie it up, you know, sure. It, the, when when they get those federal leases, both oil and gas and in coal, it, it's almost like free land to them. Yeah. They they get it at such a discount over what if they had to come to you because they discovered that your backyard had oil and gas, what they would have to pay you for that is so much higher than, than what they pay in any federal lease. 
and, they, that, and they can hold on to those leases for yeah. as long as they want for a buck fifty an acre. What? <laughs> oh, no. That's that's what that's what it takes to hold them. Oh boy, yeah. the self-reliant cowboy mentality of those Republicans, right? And <laughs> and they're heavily subsidized by our our taxpayer dollars. One of the really weird, sort of geopolitically, one of the things that's that's I find both fascinating and also distressing is that suddenly, just randomly last week, apparently, the U.S. is pushing very hard for a new nuclear um, deal with Iran, so they could so they can take off those those sanctions on Iranian petroleum. Uh, they're making kissy face with Antonio Maduro down in Venezuela, and Maduro's playing, you know, sending kissy face back to the United States. Uh, even though we haven't even recognized the government of Maduro, and he's, he's a dictator who stole the last election, blatantly, not even, <laughs> not even subtly did so, and, uh, and Saudi Arabia. So now Saudi Arabia is a murderous regime, and right. now there's talk about a visit to Saudi Arabia, a high-level visit from the United States, to repair the damage so that we can ask them to... to pump more or sell more oil into the international markets. All of it designed, obviously, to lower the price of gas. I don't even know if you can do that before the election. That's going to be a key question. But uh, at least it has to be a consideration for the Biden administration. But once again, you know, we, we bought from a murderous dictator. And, oh, no, that one's not working out right now. So let's, let's, let's basically make nice with its other murderous dictator. Is that a way to conduct foreign policy? Uh, it's it's not a great way to conduct foreign policy, but what's interesting right now is that the the guys that are speculators in oil think it's going to work. You know, if you if you look right now, the the price of oil has gone up to was it one hundred and twenty five dollars a barrel earlier today before it started coming down a little bit, which for one thing shows that the the U S banning Russian oil and the U K banning Russian oil were already worked into the equation because that happened today and the price actually dropped a couple of bucks. More interesting is that if you look out every month from April on in oil futures, the prices are going down. So by they've got the price back below $100. You can go out right now and buy oil futures for October below $100 and November cheaper than that and December cheaper than that. So these guys are betting that whatever it is that, that Russia contributes to the world market in oil, we're going to cover that one way or another. Can you explain what a future is? When you're buying oil, you can you can certainly buy oil. I need a delivery of oil or whatever. But you're also but you can also buy futures where you're 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 promising essentially to buy oil. It's it, at some ways it's like a stock future. I'm promising that in the future I will buy this. None of these guys that are trading futures really expect to get a shipload of oil at some point. They're treating this as as like stocks and bonds. They want uh, somebody to come along. They're betting against where the price is going to be in the future. Right? If I can buy it. For $100 now and it's $110, I can sell it and, and I don't ever want to actually have to take delivery of that oil. That's the disaster that happens earlier when the prices dropped suddenly is a lot of people got stuck with, with futures and, and had no way to really take delivery of this oil. Storage facilities around the world were, were filled up. So what you're saying then is that investors, I mean, they're basically investors, right? They're, they're basically really, investors, yeah. yeah. Speculators. They're, they are looking at the at the trajectory of, of, of the deal making and, and these diplomatic moves, and they're betting that the U.S. will be successful in unlocking new supplies of oil from presumably Iran, Venezuela and Saudi Arabia, the Gulf. Yeah. States. And they're, they're betting, as Tim said, it's, it's going to be a couple of years before we see any production 
off of any new projects. They're betting that without anybody drilling a new well anywhere, we're going to be able to plug the difference between what Russia produces and, and the existing demand on oil and do so within, say, the next six months or so. Now, the price is going down to below $100, which is not where it was. So it's still going to be higher. But we're going to cut about 25% off of where it is today. Which would be about a dollar twenty-five, yeah. of you know, off off the the big signs. But again, I, I keep coming back to this climate hawk nightmare scenario. I mean, yeah. the, this is oh, the good news is that now we're getting more oil from more repressive regimes. Yeah, exactly. And we're still not thinking how do we wean ourselves off this oil? It's because amazing. We are addicted- it's amazing that it's taken eight days to forget the IPCC report that came out February 28th. What's that? IPCC? Which, which is the, the climate, the, the new climate report from the UN. You know, the most recent one, it's the sixth time that they've done this huge assessment. And uh, already, already, it's like you're not hearing anybody, well, not anybody, but you're not hearing very many prominent people talk about it anymore. And it's barely a week old. And, it's, you know, the message there is delay is death according to Antonio Guterres, uh, you know, the secretary general, you know, the longer we wait to make this conversion away from fossil fuels, you know, essentially the more people die. I mean, that's, if you get right down to it, I mean, of course, not just humans aren't the only species who are going to get it in the neck from this, but, but that's, that's what's happening. And that's the, that's the nightmare. You know, we, we get this report, another, another of these reports, it's a grim thing. People saying, we've got to do this, we've got to do this. And now we have this war, which really puts a fly in the ointment for people who want to, who say, we've been delaying for 30 years. We can't delay any longer, or it's going to be too late to really do anything without absolutely, people think stuff is talked about now is bad. It's going to be draconian to, and maybe even impossible to make the changes 25 years down the road or 20 years down the road, or even 10. I mean, the UN four years ago said, we have until about 2030, not to get to carbon neutral, but to be on the trajectory to get there. And we're nowhere near that now. And this situation that we're in right now, at least the way the fossil fuel people want it to go, means further delay. That's the nightmare. Uh, Mark, I, you, were, you were nodding. Do you... Yeah, I, you know, I'm, I'm, think, I'm sitting here thinking that if Russia never produced another barrel of oil on the international market, I, I, I don't think it would be a disaster for anybody, right? It it's, would not, the U.S. prices would not go through the roof. Russia was predicting uh, a couple of days ago, oh, if you do this, you know, the, the price of oil is going to go to $300 a barrel, but yes. it's not going to $300 a barrel. You know, there's, there seems to be no indication that that's going to happen. And I, and I think we are positioned long term to lower that demand for, for oil in the, in the transportation sector, which is primarily where oil goes. But natural gas is a different question. And really, in terms of people hurting, the people that are hurting are Germany, Italy, and the countries that are dependent on that natural gas, which has gone up a lot more than 25% over the last uh, couple of, of weeks. And uh, they are in a much tougher position in terms of how they make that transition. So really, I think the problem really falls back on on the natural gas production, which 
what we don't need to do is loosen up the regulations in the U.S. because that's not what's holding back natural gas production in the U.S. anyway. It was prices holding back natural gas production in the U.S. So if there's demand out there and the price is high enough, there's natural gas that can be produced under the existing regulations, but it's not going to happen instantly. And how Germany absorbs the cost and the lack of energy or, or potential lack of energy in the short term, that's, that's the... Uh, the real question, I think, how Germany and, and other countries that are dependent on Russian natural gas. So there, there's, there's obviously we've, we've been talking about that nightmare scenario, but is there, and, and Mark, you started, you know, sort of shading in the direction, there may be some benefits to this all. The European Union just released a, a draft plan where they were trying to cut 85% of, of, of their, their use of, of Russian fossil fuels by 85% in I don't have it in front of me, but it's one or two years. It's, a, it's very aggressive, very fast. And a big part of that is actually renewables and, and conservation as well. Things like moving over to heat pumps, which are a way to heat a, a dwelling and, and buildings, any buildings using electricity. And once you have electricity, you can, you can, you can greenify that power. Obviously, you can use solar, wind. Germany is very aggressive on renewables, um, aside from its dependence on Russian oil, it's hard to drive through Germany and not see windmills and solar panels everywhere. And so there, there is a, there, there, is there a scenario where people look at this and I'm not there both at the consumer level, but also at the policy level and say, this isn't working. Now we're buying from Venezuela, from another murderous dictator. Maybe we need to, to take a closer look at renewables. And I, one big piece, obviously, is that the cost of renewables, like Mark said, is, is, is plummeting. Solar is becoming more, uh, more, more cheaper than a lot of fossil fuels. Uh, storage, batteries, which is a big problem with solar, right, because there's no, no power at night. The cost of storage is also coming down. It was hard to watch the Super Bowl without seeing, you know, half the ads were electric cars, right? There is a move towards that already. Can this maybe, is there a hopeful scenario where this maybe makes people think like, whoa, yeah, like maybe we shouldn't be funding these these um, this dirty, polluting, climate changing, dictator supporting form of power. Tim, do you have any? Is there any hope in that? Well, there's obviously there's hope, or I wouldn't be uh, you know I wouldn't have been a climate hawk for the last thirty years. But you know, I, I think the problem. Is, I mean, the problem obviously is politics. You know, in the United States, you know, we've got people in the way. You know, we were on a path, you know, with Build Back Better, you know, we were on a path to make it happen faster than it was happening, that whole acceleration thing that we need to do. And of course, as we know, that's dead. And it looks like it may be completely dead. You know, before it looked like, okay, Manchin was, Senator Manchin from West Virginia was going to stop his objections to some of it and allow the climate provisions from Build Back Better to be allowed, but he has conditions and the conditions are such that it just doesn't seem like it's gonna happen this year. And if it doesn't happen this year, given what we may face in midterms, right. because we will have Republicans in power and they're not gonna do it. Even though there are a few Republicans who are wise on this issue. I mean, it's amazing that you have two of the most conservative states, Iowa and Texas, with the largest amount of wind power in the country. You know, like a total of, I think, something like 21,000 wind turbines in those two states alone. 
And Iowa produces almost 50% of its electricity now from, from wind. So there's proof it can be done. And there's proof that there are some people on the right who know this and who, who support this, except when it actually comes to voting uh, in Congress on something that would make it happen nationally. And so from that perspective, I'm not that optimistic in the short run. I'm really not. Yeah, I mean, clearly the, the Republican Party is, is largely, if not primarily, funded by fossil fuel interest. I mean, this is, this is the core, the Koch brothers, right? That's a fossil fuel interest. And the, those windfill manuf- wind, windmill manufacturers in Iowa apparently don't have the, <laughs> they don't have the juice yet. They don't have the, the billions to spend on, on politics. So clearly, Mark, you've been tracking, you've been tracking sort of the, the, the mix of energy and there has been this shift towards renewables. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? And then also maybe speculate a little if this, conflict will will have an impact on that trajectory at the moment. Yeah, you know, there's one thing that I, I skated right past before, which Tim brought up earlier, which I, I should, shouldn't make light of, which is that there are going to be some additional bumps because of those specialty products that Russia provides. For example, uh, gasoline that's formulated for certain regions. So you've seen that happen before, right, where gas prices will go up, not because there's a shortage of gas, but because it's turned over to summer, and for some reason, we're having trouble finding enough of the gas that's formulated for summer. So don't be surprised if it's specifically in California, come summer, there's a, a difficulty getting the gas that is formulated for that region. Wait, wait, wait. There, there's different gases for different seasons? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Well, uh, okay. Can you just quick, I know it's a tangent, <laughs> <laughs> but that's, that's, new. that's new to me. Yeah, there there are different formulations that are used in different regions and and at different times of the year to meet uh, environmental standards and and the the those in some areas have been difficult to come up. It's been difficult to meet the demand because they could be very specific where those are manufactured. So if if California and I don't know Tim, do you know this, this specifically? If California is getting its summertime mix coming by boat from Russia then that could be an issue. I don't know how much it is, but there's certainly some of it is. I mean, I was surprised to find this out. So, you know, but I, I don't know what the numbers are. Right. But so, so it's not, it's not like there's going to be no impact. You know, the prices are going to go up a dollar 25 and then they're going to gradually ease down and it's going to be smooth everywhere. There's still What I'm getting at is there's still going to be plenty for the Republicans to talk about when it hits October, even if prices have eased by then. They're going to be able to point to a pump somewhere and say, look at that $7.99 on that pump and uh, how horrible it is. And, gee, the gas was $2 under Trump. Look, uh, it wasn't that better. But, uh, yeah, in terms of the overall picture, it's really astounding how much cheaper uh, renewables have become and how they just keep dropping. They've dropped, they dropped more year over year and the, it, there's no sign of it slowing. You know, they used to show those charts on, on computer chips about how, you know, you were getting uh, the doubling of power every couple of years and that has slowed down. But so far the, the happening of cost on solar panels has not. And so they just keep getting cheaper. And, and right now if you can go out and buy brand new solar or wind and get it and put it up and and add it to the system cheaper than you can maintain the existing fossil fuel plants. So that's 
uh, you know, that's an amazing. So uh, I'm going to underscore that it is cheaper to buy new renewable solar and wind than it is just to keep running existing natural gas, coal, fossil fuel. Yeah. Wow. It's yeah. and it, it varies greatly across the country. I mean, in yeah. terms of, I, th- I don't think coal makes it anywhere, but in right. some places, natural gas is still cheaper than than wind or solar. But it's very close. And but you know, with with the the, the nice thing about uh, wind and solar too, and and natural gas has this to some extent. But the nice thing about wind and solar too is they're very scalable. Yeah. You know, you can't you cannot put up a coal plant that doesn't cost a billion dollars because there's just no way to make the economics work without just building this enormous plant. And you can't build a, put up a natural gas plant that, you know, just works for your neighborhood very, very efficiently. But you can put up solar panels on your house or, you know, you can put up a, a, a couple of windmills that power one small town. So that's the, the very nice thing about the renewables is that they are scalable. The problem with renewables is, is that they're, they're not perfectly consistent, reliable. And they they also have uh, that that problem can be overcome with storage, as you said. So the better the storage and the cheaper the storage, the less it matters that the sun doesn't shine at night. And storage is on a, a downward curve in terms of price, the same way that solar panels were twelve years ago. Say, right. you know, mostly because of the Chinese, but but uh, that the same thing is happening with storage now. It's on a very steep downward cost curve. So that's going to be, you know, a bit of difference now. I mean, there are issues with what kind of batteries are we going to use for this storage and all that. And there's some very new things out there, most of which probably won't pan out. But we're on that. We're on that path. The problem is it's too slow. Right. And the acceleration is what we need. I mean, everybody says, oh, look, I've seen all these electric cars and lots of more people buying them. Absolutely true. Same thing with solar when they just they did record last year. I mean, in the midst of COVID, still they did record installations of both in the United States last year. But the problem is, it's still not enough. It's not fast enough. We will not make the pledges that lots of places have made to hit certain targets by 2030 or 2035, given what we're doing now. Somebody I don't know who it was says that right now we're investing something like two percent of GDP and in, in new and new energy, we need to be doing 5%, which is a huge increase. The, the one thing that the, the fall of coal since 2008 shows is that it really is possible to, to redo, you know, those, those trillions of megawatts in, in that period of time. You know, it, I, people looked at the scale of the problem back then, and, and a lot of people were willing to dismiss it out of hand, right? There's just no way you can change that level of electrical production. But it, well, we've already demonstrated that in terms of moving from coal to natural gas, yeah, sure you can. But right now, uh, like Tim says, every year we may double the production of solar, but if we're talking about doubling it from 1% to 2%, that's that's not enough. We've, we've got to have something like Build Back Better that really – put something more pressure on it than the market itself is producing to move us toward renewables. Yeah, no, context really does matter, right? Doubling yeah. from nothing is still nothing. <laughs> so <laughs> so um, I'm lucky I have, I have the resources that I've been able to build a house that um, is carbon negative. Maybe not, I mean, the construction of the house used up a lot of carbon, right? But at least maintaining the house, I actually generate more electricity than I consume. And I have batteries and then I'm kicking back a lot of excess energy into the grid. 
And so there's this debate over whether whether individual choices can actually have an impact or we, or we really do need that grid level investment in, in, in green energy. Because my house can be the most greenhouse and uh, I would argue that it's up there, but it's one in tens of millions of homes in the United States, right? So as a percentage, I mean, is it really having an impact? So what is the ability of the individual to have to 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 move these numbers is is it a hopeless cause is it am i just doing it for my own self satisfaction knowing that i don't have any fracking or fossil fuel products in my house or is there um is there value in that i'm not going to discount the the value of just knowing that you're doing the right thing right that there's there's not just satisfaction but uh um uh, you know a, a, a kind of a moral justification there that that, that makes you feel good. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. And somebody has to be that that uh, what's the the good tech term, right? You you've got to be that that first uh, uh, the uh, adopter, early adopter. Early adopter. Somebody's got to be the early adopter. <laughs> Somebody's got to pay ten dollars a watt so that eventually you know the next guy gets a hundred watts for a dollar. You know, yeah. so somebody's got to got to take that uh, that first shot for the rest of us. So, so I appreciate that. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, what's what's really the out there right now is that the mar- <laughs> as fast as the market is bringing it down, and as much pressure as there is moving things toward renewables, it is not enough for the markets alone. Governments have to act to step in to right. to push assert additional pressure to get renewables out there. I totally agree with that. I think it's important to note, I mean, there are a lot of people who say, oh, all that personal stuff doesn't help. And I, I disagree with that. I mean, I think we need both. We, we have, you have to have policy. You have to have you know, government policy to make this happen. And a lot of states have proven that, that, that it works. California is a good example of it, but it's not the only one. And uh, individual, individual choices you know, do make a difference in the aggregate. The problem is when one person says, well, I'm, you know, I'm doing all this good stuff as an individual, like you say, you know, or like me, you know, I, my house in Los Angeles, when I lived there uh, in 1995, we put solar panels on. Those panels now would cost less than half as much and be better than they were then. And it was kind of, you know, it's like in the neighborhood, there were two other houses like that out of about 100 houses in that neighborhood. Now, I have no idea because I'm not there, but I'm pretty sure that it's quite a few more than that. But it's still, it's just not enough. And there's a lot of people who just cannot afford it still. So you have to do community solar. I mean, that's one, yeah. way, to, one way to solve it so that other people can, can benefit from this. But that takes government policy too. You know, what would also help is if you would, in a lot of red states, like the one I'm sitting in right now, you have government policy that actively works against renewables. So right now, not not only would my state not pay me a thing to put solar panels up there, they would penalize me uh, for, for putting power back into the grid rather than paying me. So Florida, I, Florida <laughs> legislature the, is, has sent to the governor uh, a, a bill that would do essentially what some people are trying to do in California as well, which is destroy net metering. Yes. So that people like like you, Marcos, who are, you know, basically giving your excess, you know, to the grid, you know, will get less uh, for it. And in Florida and some other states where they've tried it or done it, uh, it's so much different that most people don't will, will, who haven't already installed solar panels won't do it because it isn't as economic. 
Yeah, net, net metering is when the state pay or the the utility company pays for the power that you push that you put back into the grid. And I, I was very clear, very careful to you know when I brought this up that to say that I'm somebody with means that I, I actually can afford it, which is why they're 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 you know a lot of people can't. Uh, a lot of people don't even own. They're, they're renting, right? So there's nowhere they can't even do that sort of thing. And what California is doing is is so regressive that without getting into the details, that it might actually make more sense for me to unplug yeah. from the grid and not send anything back and just kick it into yeah. my batteries. I don't and, think it's going to happen in California. So it's definitely happening in Florida and a few other places. I don't think it's going to happen here. There's too much opposition. So what what does a world look like? And, and we're getting closer and closer to the end of the show. What does a world look like where we have less reliance on, on fossil fuels and not just us, because one of the things, you know, when, when we invaded, um, when we pushed out Iraq from Kuwait, Kuwaiti oil wasn't for the United States, right? It was, I think, if I remember correctly, it was predominantly sent to Japan and to Europe. And so there, there's a, there's a, we need to protect our allies as well. What happens in a world where that demand, not just, like I said, not just us, but also Japan, and and uh, in Europe and even China is has been very aggressive about trying to do more renewables to clean up its air for you know among other things. What does that world look like where dictators don't have that kind of power, where Russia isn't no, you know no longer becomes you know makes oligarchs wealthy because of its fossil fuels? Does that mean less wars? Does it mean I mean obviously there's a climate change component. Any idea? how that would change that equation. One thing that's happening right now is everybody's getting a very stark reminder that dependence on fossil fuels is a strategic weakness. You know, it, it's, it gives Putin an incredible leverage that, that is as, as tough as we're handling him right now, he's still got hundreds of millions of dollars a day coming into Russia because of natural gas. It's about 600 million from Germany alone the last time right. I looked. And, and again, a lot of numbers being thrown out. So caveat that, but it's a lot. And that's foreign, that's foreign cash, right? It's not rubles, yeah. which are so, becoming you know, we, worthless. We, we're in this contest where in theory, we could be showing that it's possible to make war so costly that, that people won't conduct it. And that we don't have to militarily confront someone to get them to stop a military action, but Putin is still being somewhat propped up by hundreds of millions of dollars a day because of the dependencies we have on fossil fuels. And people are, are getting a strong reminder that that's, it, we would not be going to Venezuela. We would not be going to Saudi Arabia. We, you know, we would not be, be dealing with people that we don't want to deal with that are, that are huge violators of human rights and, and environmental policies if they didn't have fossil fuels. So fossil fuels is, is a weakness on every part of our foreign policy front. And so, you know, it's a weakness for everybody that uses them. So um, the faster that we can get away from them, the, the quicker that we can discard that weakness. There's, there's another aspect to, of it too, and it doesn't have to do with dictators so much, but it definitely is geopolitics. And that is, take Africa, for example, or Indonesia or, or India even. Those places where a lot of lots of people still don't have electricity in Africa, it's a it's a huge percentage who don't. And part of the problem has been stringing lines, you know, transmission lines and all that sort of thing is extremely expensive. 
We don't have to do that with solar. And you could, you could do a whole lot of helping out even the smallest villages, you know, with just a few kilowatts of electricity, suddenly you have changed their lives immensely. And, you know, given, you know, Africa's population is, is expanding uh, and there's all kinds of other issues, environmental issues going on there. But some of the biggest oil producers, Nigeria, Libya really isn't Africa, it's North Africa, but you have, you have these, and, and the Congo with, you know, their, their stuff, that's going to be another issue. But I think that that, that change could make a huge difference in politics overall as well to finally, you know, give people an option that they don't now have to, you know, bring themselves into the modern world, really. You, you saw that in Africa and everywhere else with, with cell phones, right? People mm. had no access to the internet, but, and they would never have had access to the internet or would still not have access to the internet if they were waiting for AT&T or their local equivalent to come along and lay a cable to their house. But cell phones gave them that internet access. And, and so solar can do the same thing for them on electricity that, that cell phones did in terms of accessing information. So let's, let's assume, <laughs> it's a good assumption, that Congress won't let anything through, right? That Republicans will block, for all their petty BS reasons, they're going to block any meaningful uh, legislation that can help us start weaning ourselves from that, from that oil. Uh, and let's assume that Democrats will continue to lack a real governing majority because Kirsten Sinema and because of Joe Manchin in the Senate. Is there anything Joe Biden himself by executive order can do to get us closer to that path towards uh, true energy independence and, and independence from even from, you know, from the petroleum industry? Short term or long term? Both. Well, short term, I'm in favor of declaring a climate emergency. Declaring a national emergency for that would mean some things could be done that can't be done by executive order now. There are a lot of people who say, well, climate change doesn't really fit into the national emergency, the, the use that we have put national. You mean like, like hurricanes and earthquakes? And- I, 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 mean, I mean something that says like World War II, basically. It's okay. World War II, and all you companies are going to have to make tanks instead of Chryslers now. Oh. That's the kind of thing that you can do. That's a really risky, risky move. Right. But we face a lot of risks. So is that something that, say, if, if the Republicans take control of, of one or both chambers this November, Biden could do that unilaterally? Yes. Okay. He, could, he could still do that, you know, to the extent, though, that, that uh, as we've seen over the, the last two years with the pandemic, the, the other factor there is the courts. Right. So you can you better believe that everything that he does is immediately going to be taken yeah, into the courts. Course. So, yeah, yeah, and yeah, boy, that's we've, already, we've already gotten to the point where you know we've got a, a a court decision in Louisiana district court from a kind of weird judge, but nonetheless, you know, eliminating social carbon. You know, it's like you know that old external economic externality of oh the health costs and the environmental costs that's not our concern. Is that, is that taken into consideration right now? Well, it is, but right now under Trump, it was a, it's a dollar per ton of, of CO2 emissions. Okay. And that's, that's the effect that it has on people's health. 
on degrading the environment. Right. Is that what that is? Just but yes. And under under Biden, they were trying to raise it to fifty one dollars a ton. Less. Okay, it's still not enough. But what this judge says was no. You can't, you can't do that. And it's, you know, it's, it's all around this issue of how much authority does EPA have that it, it legitimately has. Did Congress say that it could do this? If it didn't, then they can't do it. And that, of course, goes against right. administrative law for over the last 50 years or more. So, I mean, there's a real assault on the administrative yeah, um, system right now. Yep. To, conservatives are trying to argue that unless Congress specifically 100 percent detailed it, that the, that the executive, executive can't do it. And unfortunately, they may actually have the votes in the Supreme Court. We don't know yet. But it's, yeah. it's the, the extent to which you know, that's already true in the U.S. Is, is really astounding. I mean, you look at the Canadian health care bill is like eight pages long. But they leave a lot of that stuff up to the agencies that, that define it. But uh, you know, we already try to get all the T's crossed and I's dotted in terms of what we really want this to do. But there's just nothing that you can do that an administrative agency doesn't have to step in and fill in the details. And if they can't, then, then government can't function. Yeah, this goes way beyond energy. I mean, this. Yeah. I mean, if they, if this, this, if this, if the Supreme Court rules the way it could rule in one of the cases coming up, and will probably come up in June, uh, it could be, it could be devastating for you know it's every single thing the government does that has any kind of 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 letting an letting an agency you know make the rules could be at risk so the united states is is that that's pretty the prognosis is bleak just given our political situation is there is there more hopeful news coming out of europe or or asia that might that might suggest a more global response you know if the maybe the us isn't carrying its weight but the rest of the world is is doing better. Is any any signs of that, or are we really sort of locked into this reality for for the foreseeable future? You know, I think I think that this, uh, like I say, is is jogging everybody's memory that uh, that that fossil fuels are bad, not just because of the climate, but because of the weakness that it represents. So I think uh, in 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 the intermediate term. Uh, nations in Europe and Asia both were, are likely to accelerate their move toward energy independence, and probably likely that's uh, to be in the form of, of renewable energy. So that's that's a great thing. Uh, I don't know how, in the short term, uh, Germany and, and other countries absorb the cost that they're facing right now with just how much the cost of, of natural gas has, has gone up for them. That's like I say, for them, the impact is much greater than, than what we're paying at the pump. Any sort of final thoughts? We're at the end of the show. Any sort of c- concluding thoughts that you may want to leave people with concerning this sort of discussion that we've had, as wide, wide ranging as it has been? Take it away, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> this is a place where we toss the ball back and forth to each other without saying anything. <laughs> I, you know, I've always been a believer in both electoral politics and street politics. And I think we're at one of those places right now where some street politics, we should imitate those Russians who at great risk to themselves and their families are in the streets of Russia protesting the war uh, that many Russians don't even know is going on apparently because of the propaganda levels. I think we need to be in this, when I say in the streets or street politics, I don't just literally mean in protest. But I think, you know, that kind of movement is really what's going to be required here and everywhere. And 
from that perspective, I have a lot of optimism because young people are really have really taken up the lead in this. They're they're out there. They're they're talking it up. They're pushing hard. Yeah. And you know, you can I can look back on my own past as an activist and say you're making some mistakes. Yeah, but the energy, the passion, you know, the desire to change things is there, and that's what always has made the difference in America. It, every reform that we've ever seen. It started in the streets and eventually it got confirmed by Congress. And that's, that's my hopefulness part. Yeah, it's their world and, and the older generations are not doing a good job of um, leaning something worth, <laughs> worth living in right now. Uh, absolutely. But I do love the, the optimism. Mark, any optimism from you? You know, I think we're at one of those pivot points. I, I, I wrote this in uh, Daily Coast today. The, the, you know, at one end, we've seen people predicting these dire things, right? Like how easy it would be for Putin to be pushed into using tactical nukes and opening the door to something even worse. But at the other end of this, I think we really could come out of this um, with astounding benefits for everybody, right? This really could push people toward accelerating the use of renewable energy. It really could come out of this with a, a global understanding that, that wars of aggression just don't make any sense anymore. So I think there is there is a really hopeful end to this pivot point that we're at. But, you know, that's the problem with being in, in the middle of something like this is that you don't know what's on the other side of it, right? So we're, we're all prognosticating, and, and, and but I want to be hopeful that we could come out of this, like I say, with those, with those things, faster renewables, less war that's that's a possible outcome tim lang also known as meteor blaze on daily coast pulled him out of retirement <laughs> for this conversation because <laughs> as you've just seen very few people have the breadth and and extent of knowledge on this issue as tim does so tim thank you so much for for joining us mark sumner still writing at daily coast uh i hope you don't have any plans for retirement anytime soon <laughs> and again expert on energy policy and you guys have seen it uh, i hope you've all enjoyed it Tim and Mark, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Walter, for producing the show. Thanks, everybody in the in the brief team for doing all the work they do behind the scenes. And thank you, the viewer and listener and reader. Appreciate you from the bottom of my heart. We have this existential battle for the soul of our nation, for our democracy this November. Every time we talk about a topic, it sort of reinforces that point. Now we're talking about issues of war and about climate change and whether we have a planet worth living in. Those are the issues that are at stake this November. So I'm glad you guys are with us in this fight. Glad to have you by our side. Thank you so much for joining us today and see you next week. Thank you for listening. If you're enjoying the show, give us a rating wherever you get your podcast. You can always talk to us at dailycoast.com or on Twitter at Daily Coast. See you next week.